Hello, this is Melissa Hale, Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here today with Christopher Filippo. And he is kind of a Renaissance man, I'm discovering. We invited him in because our readers will be familiar with a marvelous letter he recently wrote us um, where he detailed the finding of forgotten, abandoned gravestones. One was edging a garden in Glenmont. The other was a stoop for a barn in Gilderland. It turns out they were father and son, and thanks to Chris, they're now together again in Prospect Hill Cemetery. But he came in with this armful of books with his varied interests, and I just thought it would be fun to start with a very silly poem in a book he's collected of poetry by a man I had never heard of, and I pride myself in knowing poetry, H.C. Dodge. Here we go. English as she is wrote. The teacher a lesson he taught, the preacher a sermon he prot. The stealer he stole, the healer he whole, the screecher he awfully scrot. It goes on like this, but the idea is the way these words are spelled is not the way you would expect. So, Christopher, what what got you interested in Dot? Yeah, I was doing research about some other topic, um, in old newspaper databases, and there was a poem by H.C. Dodge on the same page as uh, an article on the subject that I was actually looking for, Uh, and the poem was clever enough uh, and amusing enough that I wanted to see more uh, by H.C. Dodge, and as I looked, I found that there were no books that he had ever published. Um, he, He only apparently wrote for newspapers. Uh, and sometimes uh, magazines like um, Puck, which was sort of the mad magazine, I suppose, of its day. Um, He was, as it turned out, the nephew of Mary Mapes Dodge, who uh, was the editor of a children's journal um, called St. Nicholas, which was um, pretty well-known, pretty well-respected in its time. And she was also the author of a children's book, Hans Brinker or the Silver Skates, uh, which is something some people are familiar with. But you know. I'm familiar with that book. Okay. Well, so I think this is a clue to you. You're looking, researching something, and on the same page, you find something else. And then you don't just turn back to your research, you follow what interests you. It seems that might be, you have so many diverse interests. They they do tend to keep spreading out over time that way. I, um, yeah, it's kind of looking for context of the, the thing that I'm looking at. Like I, I like those old newspaper databases where you can see the whole page of the newspaper. The ones where they pull up only the article that you want are really irritating to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, if I see something else that's interesting or sparks a thought, um, sometimes I'll follow it up. There's not time to follow up everything of that nature, of course. And then you went to the effort of putting together a book of this man's poetry that he himself had never done. I I thought it deserved it. Um, You know, he had, most of his poems were uh, humorous. He had some range. Um, Some of them were wordplay, either, you know, in spelling or punning on words. Other ones were kind of early, um, what looks like text. So, um, short message servicing, like um, the farmer loading up his hay hums low a melody, but he spells hay A, so loading up his A, (laughs) and then hums low a melody, but it's M-L-O-D. So those poems of his, they they look like they could have been texted by somebody today. Well, also you have another book of his poems that is just stunning, and it's too bad we can't be visual here, because you think of you know, poetry coming along, excuse me, through an oral tradition. And you think it wasn't until very, very recently, you know, the second half of the last century, where poets started paying attention to how their words looked on a page. And here you have this man in the 1800s that created actual artwork with the shape of the words 
on the page. Like there's one where a poem looks like a pipe, and there's it's it's just astounding. Yeah, they're they're really fun. They're they're clever. Um, there there's some joking about uh, you know how frustrating it was to the the newspaper people to have to set these and type. I can't imagine because hot lead type you can't yeah. have the kind of play you do now. Right. With a, yeah. So um, and and some of them have very complex shapes. Some have fairly simple shapes. Um, but yeah, he he took great amusement in it. It wasn't his career. He worked for. Um, you know, he was a clerk of some kind, so I, I imagine possibly he also wrote for, like, a company journal, but I haven't found anything of that nature yet. So what do you do for a livelihood? Um, a lot of volunteering uh, recently. I, I'm one of the trustees for the Bethlehem Historical Association. Uh, I joined the board of that this year, but I've been a member for, for longer. I had been a trustee of the... Lansingburg Historical Society, um, and then I've also done uh, gravestone conservation work kind of on my own or with others, um, some, sometimes in conjunction with the Troy uh, Genealogical Society, or um, there's a couple in Troy that uh, had helped out with the, the headstones that were in the article, um, Cameron Smith and Alicia Hamilton in Troy. They do a lot of work in New Mount Ida Cemetery. So what got you interested in this? I saw online a long list of sort of cases you had cracked <laughs> in, in finding, you know, the origin of some of these. Right. Um, I, I have always had an interest in local history. Um, both my brother and I, growing up, our parents took us to a lot of, um, you know, historic homes, museums, and things of that sort. Um so I, I did have an interest in cemeteries as sort of a documents of local history. And then uh, in doing some genealogical research, uh, I'm adopted, but my biological uh, family, one of the lines, was in Lansingburg for several generations. So I was able to use um, cemeteries as a way of helping with that. And then I also had a gym partner who enjoyed walking in cemeteries, so... <laughs> You know, I started walking more <laughs> in cemeteries. Yeah, I started walking more in cemeteries <laughs> that um, had nothing to do with, you know, my own ancestry and, and finding it interesting and um, starting to submit photos to uh, findagrave.com of uh, headstones. It's a website. It's kind of like a Wikipedia for cemeteries and headstones. So if, uh, for example, you have an ancestor in California uh, in a certain cemetery, you're not going to be able to fly out there yourself to visit the grave, but you want a photo of the grave, you can post a request on the website, uh, and somebody eventually might take a photo of it for you. So, And I've done just voluntarily um, taken a lot of photos of headstones. Uh, one of the ones that I started with was um, the Beth Emmeth uh, cemetery in Glenmont, which I think is the oldest Jewish cemetery in all of upstate New York. And I took photographs of every single headstone in that cemetery. It's not a very big one. Um, and posted those to find a grave and then connected with another user on the website, um, who his wife had some ancestors in that cemetery. And then he, uh, started doing some research about that cemetery and the people there. And we collaborated on, uh, adding biologic, um, biographical information uh, to the Find a Grave website for some of the people buried there. Well, it just sounds like a remarkable intersection of the very modern technology that the Internet allows that reach, and then the old, and I know pun meant, dying tradition of burying people more and more people are getting cremated with ashes scattered here and there, and here right. you are using those two very modern and very old traditions <laughs> and piecing together. Yeah, um, I had even experimented with um, some software where you can take photographs of a headstone from different angles, and then the software will take those photographs and create a 3D model from those photographs. And then um, at the 
I never remember the name quite correctly. The the Tech Valley Center of Gravity in Troy. Um, oh yes, I've done a podcast with a woman that runs that. Yeah. yeah. So they they helped. Um, they took a model, a three D model I'd created, and we did a three D print of one of the headstones that I'd photographed, oh, which that's, was kind of fun. That's really exciting. Yeah. Well, so maybe just to give a very specific narrative to our listeners who didn't read your wonderful letter, could you just kind of walk us through what happened in in these two very disparate headstones that were found and, and how you, you worked to put that all together? Right. Um, so I had been emailed um, by a local cemetery blogger, uh, Paula Lemire, uh, who now works with Albany uh, Rural Cemetery as kind of a historian for them. And she had seen online um, something about a headstone that was being sold on a Facebook like Capital District garage sale or something like that. Uh, and some people had taken offense at the wording of the the ad where um, I have the wording here. It was kind of remarkable. Let's see. Um, it was $100, Glenmont, over 150 years old, found when digging in my yard. No bodies, no creepy story. Great for Halloween. Don't use a cheesy foam tombstone. Get the real thing. Yeah, so a lot of people took issue with that. And uh, the the woman who found the headstone in, in her uh, garden being used as an edger, like she she wasn't as disrespectful about it as, you know, that ad made it seem like she had found it. The first thing she did was contact the town, uh, because she was worried, you know, is there, uh, are there graves here that I have to worry about? Or, you know, is, does this belong somewhere else? Um, and I guess what she was told was that, no, there was no cemetery there. Uh, and you know, that must be, um, just like an error that somebody made uh, and discarded. And so you can get rid of it. You don't need to worry about it. Um, but even when they told her that, uh, she she didn't feel good about just, you know, tossing it out. So she put it in the back of her garage to think about what to do with it another day. Uh, and eventually when she was going to be putting her house on the market, she, she kind of returned to the headstone and said, oh, gee, I have to do something about that. So she she had posted that ad, um, but when Paula Lemire got in touch with me, she was wondering if uh, it could have come from a cemetery that used to be um, near the Spectrum Movie Theater on Delaware Avenue. Um, there's St. John's Catholic Cemetery that had been moved, and headstones from that one have been found occasionally in uh, alleyways or being used as like. Uh, side yard sidewalks for homes mm. in South Albany. So she wondered if maybe it had come from there, but some quick um, research on uh, Ancestry.com, kind of we were able to find out the the family that this child uh, child's headstone uh, was from. And, yeah, it wasn't from St. John's. Like, it turned out it seemed to be from... Um, Oh, the New Scotland Presbyterian Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a churchyard alongside the church there. Uh, the family lived in that area. Then they moved north, and then they moved into Albany. Um, at some point, I found out that the, the headstone, um, the child was actually interred in Prospect Hill Cemetery, reinterred to, to that cemetery in Gilderland. Uh, and there was a row of uh, five granite headstones there, um, the first two just said brother, father, uh, the middle one said mother, and then the last two had full names of people and dates. So it seems to be the case that um, when the family was reinterred, uh, maybe they discarded the marble headstone. It had been broken or something, or maybe they intended to get a large granite family monument that would have the full names of everybody in the family and the dates. Uh, they were born and died, um, and for some reason the family never got around to placing that uh, that family headstone. So, um, so I started working on repairing, uh, cleaning, and repairing the the marble headstone that was found in Glenmont. Um, my friend Cameron Smith um, 
had what was needed to, to do the repairs. I had the materials to clean it. And there were um, a couple local TV stories about the, the headstones, kind of the first just mainly about the article. The second one kind of incorporated some of what I had found because um, one of the reporters showed up at the house when I was picking up the headstone there <laughs> with the president of the Bethlehem Historical Association. Um, so there, there were, you know, a couple newspaper articles, I think, and then the two, um, television stories that were done. So I'm working on repairing the headstone and I get an email from a woman in California that tells me, you know, my father, <laughs> you know, has this headstone of the, the father of this family that, you know, the, the family owned the house for, Oh, decades and decades, and nobody in the family realized there was a headstone like outside their barn because it was faced. Yeah, yeah, it was faced. The inscription was uh, face down, and it was partly buried, I guess. And um, he would tie his dog up um, near the headstone. The dog's chain kind of cleared off the back of the headstone more, but he never thought to flip it over because he just didn't expect that there would be a headstone in his yard. Um, but at some point somebody came by the house wanting to see if he could do some metal detecting, uh, in the yard because there's a historical marker out front. Um, and the man, like in the course of asking for permission to do the metal detecting said, Oh, you have a headstone there. Why do you have that? And you know, that guy said, no, it's not, you know, that's not a headstone. It's just, you know, a stoop. Um, but they, they flipped it over. They found it was a headstone and, you know, they took a rubbing of it, I guess, at the time. Um, but they, they didn't really have the means, I guess, to do research or into it. So this woman that emailed me when she, she was starting to try to do some research about, um, you know, who the person was, where the headstone might belong. That's when she, uh, found kind of all the news coverage about the one that was found in Glenmont. So um, she arranged for me to go to her father's house, uh, meet her father, and then I took custody of that headstone, and uh, Cameron and I started working on cleaning and repairing that one. Got permission from the superintendent at um, the Gilderland Prospect Hill Cemetery uh, to place those stones there. So... And there they are. There that they must are. Feel really good, doesn't? Yeah, it? I mean, there, there's there's uh, it, it wraps up just about everything. We don't know exactly why the headstones wound up in such you know wide uh, spread areas as they did. Uh, we can theorize, and then the mother, uh, she still has just the mother granite headstone. So I would speculate that there's probably a marble headstone for somewhere her, for her somewhere. <laughs> If anyone's listening, but it just makes you realize how short-lived the mourning period is. You know, two, three generations, and no one knows what family headstones were or yeah, where they were. People but, move out of the area. Yeah. Uh, in this case, this particular family, the two children that did live uh, full lives, um, I don't believe either of them ever married or had children. So, you know, the family dies out. Um, there's really not anybody looking to solve that particular family mystery. No, I guess. and it's just maybe with the Internet and more interest now and people finding their family roots, there'll be some societies have more of a sense of lineage of, you know, their descendants. But that segues into you mentioned you were adopted, and I know um, that you've done a lot with the current legislation waiting to be signed. And could you just fill people in? Because I wasn't aware until I started looking around because of you that in New York State, um, you're not allowed to have your own birth certificate if you're adopted. Right. Um, There was a law passed in 1936 um, that when somebody is adopted, the original birth certificate could be sealed and there's an amended birth certificate created that substitutes the names of the adoptive parents for the biological parents. Um, The 1936 law, uh, it wasn't mandatory, um, but it was probably done in most most cases. Um, Prior to that, if somebody was adopted, 
the they'd still have access to that original birth certificate. They might still go by um, their birth name, even though that they they wouldn't necessarily have any. Um, they didn't really have open adoptions back then, where there would still be um, contact with the biological family. So, and then 1949, um, there was a law passed that made it completely mandatory for that. Uh, original birth certificate to be sealed and for the amended birth certificate to be created. And the way that you gain access to that currently is by petitioning the court. Um, And the courts have generally not been helpful, at least in cases that have been um, published in law reporters. Um, They generally reject petitions from people to have their original birth certificate unsealed even uh, from people that know who their biological parents are, they're they're that um, tight, strict, you know. Yeah, yeah very strict so about it. What started you on this mission? Were you were you searching for your own birth certificate, or? Well, I had always had some interest in in knowing more about um, my biological ancestry. Um, you know, I, I was happy in my my adopted family but you know you still wonder about that uh that aspect of things and you're forced to wonder about it often because you go to the doctor and the the if you have a new doctor or your old doctor forgets you know they say well you know what's your medical history oh, i have no idea you know there's really nothing you can say um my adoptive father um when i was living I think it was when I was living in Austin, Texas for a while. He had sent me an article from the Times Union, uh, your competitor, sorry about that, um, (laughs) about the New York State Adoption uh, Information Registry uh, that the Department of Health runs. Um, And that will give you some non-identifying information. um, And if you and your biological parents also register uh, they'll put you in contact with each other. Um, but it doesn't have a very high success rate for that. So did that work for you? Did you try that route? I did try it. Um, and I got the non-identifying information, which for the most part was fairly useless. Mm. You know, it was things like, um, you know, mother's skin complexion, fair, <laughs> you know, hair color, brown, um, you know, height, whatever. Uh, age, whatever. Uh, the only things that were somewhat more uh, useful, like there were some things about hobbies uh, at the time and the the reason for the surrender for adoption, uh, which you know, she had had uh, an affair while her husband was away uh, in the war. And he came back before she gave birth and they decided together that, you know, to put me up for adoption. Um so that that was not unexpected, you know, there was there's certainly horror stories about how people can be born or how how they can be surrendered, but that was I figure a fairly typical kind of story about why somebody would be given up for adoption. But, you know, the lack of medical history still on that non-identifying form, the lack of any kind of more uh detail kind of about just knowing a little bit about more who they were. Um, was very frustrating, very unsatisfying. Um, I did try petitioning the court, um, was not successful with that. Uh, I got involved with, um, some adoption, adoptee rights groups. Uh, you mentioned, I think at the beginning, one of them, Bastard Nation, the adoptee rights yeah, organization. Yeah, well, it's a really stunning name. It you is. Yeah. It's, um, and there, there is sort of a reason behind the name, like some of the founders, uh, were influenced partly by Queer Nation, kind of a mm-hmm. gay rights organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, Bastard Nation, it was kind of both um, finding some humor and being adopted, you know, joking about some things, um, but also kind of calling attention to the stigma um, against illegitimacy and that having a role in um, the sealing of adoption records in the first place. And uh, the, the hesitancy ask you that of courts. Why were these laws passed? Right. Has- yeah. So the the 1936 law um, 
followed on a 1935 law that uh, Governor Lehman had vetoed. The legislature in 1935 had passed a law that would have um, permitted birth certificates for illegitimate children to have fictitious names for uh, the father, and then the mother would be given the fictitious surname of the father, as would uh, the child. This sort of cover for an indiscretion is how they viewed it. Is that the idea? R- well, right. It yeah. was, uh, but not so, the the motivation did not have to do so much with um, protecting the mother from stigma, although it would probably have that effect. Um, Provided she moved, I guess, to a different community because, you know, in her community she would still be known. But um, it had to do with kind of protecting the child from the stigma of illegitimacy. It was it was quite a big thing back then and uh, I suppose even now to some extent. Um, so that would have, you know, in that case the actual uh, facts of the birth would not be preserved in writing at all. Like this, this would have been sort of in lieu of a, um, you know, rather than an original birth certificate and an amended birth certificate, this was kind of making a fictitious original birth certificate. And it didn't have anything to do with adoption at that time. So the, the governor, uh, after the legislature had passed that bill, uh, vetoed it, saying that this is not in the public interest to have, you know, fictitious records because we don't want to throw you know, among other things, we don't want to throw into doubt kind of all all of our records. Mm-hmm. Like, how can we trust anything if we're permitting, knowingly permitting uh, fictitious things to be recorded? Um, so he appointed a commission to study the problem of illegitimacy. And that commission, kind of in looking at the issue, uh, started looking a little wider uh, and started looking at adoption laws also uh, in other states. And their intention in in the system where there's an original birth certificate that's sealed and an amended one uh, was to preserve the original information, but they didn't have any intention of making it inaccessible. Um, at the time, there were other records that were still open, like um, – you know, there's not just the birth records, but there's adoption agency records and there are the court adoption records. Um, so the court adoption records at that time, like some of the indexes uh, were still uh, possible to view. And up to 1968, uh, adoptive parents could still be given on the adoption order the uh, the birth name or the, of the child or kind of the the names of the biological parents. Um, and then even, you know, up to a few years ago, the birth indexes for New York City for the five boroughs were in the New York Public Library. So you could look at, if you were an adoptee who was born in the five boroughs, you could look at your uh, amended birth certificate um, and the number, you would look for the number and the, the date in those indexes, and you would find your birth name and your birth parents' names there. So New York City uh, was sort of an open records jurisdiction, so to speak. The, the books did get taken off the shelves there, but they were scanned before that happened. So, oh I mean, goodness. they're still not secret, you know. And oddly, a lot of the opposition to changing New York State's laws uh, to let adoptees have access to their original birth certificates as a matter of right came from legislature legislators that were from the five boroughs. So, you know, they're saying, oh, you know, New York State can't do this because, you know, it's a promise, you know, um, there's been a promise of, you know, anonymity that's and been yeah, given in their, in their own jurisdiction. It's possible to get your birth name. It's yeah. just fascinating how much you know about this topic. So on your own personal journey, did you find out who your adoptive parent or your biological parents were? I did. I did. Um I learned who my biological mother was through hiring a private investigator that had a good reputation. Um, she was one who had a policy of um, no fine, no fee. So you wouldn't give her any money up front. You would sign kind of a contract that she would do the search. And then when she found the information, um, you would pay her and then you'd get it. Um, 
a lot of adoptees over the years have really been taken by PIs for, you know, a lot of money because they're, you know, charge an hourly fee or whatever. And they just keep searching and searching and searching. So when, when you were given your mother's name, was she still alive? Yes. Um, and the PI actually gave me more information than I expected. Like she gave me the name of, um, the man that she was married to at the time that I was, uh, conceived and the second husband of my biological mother and the second wife of my putative father, you know, the man that, uh, was married to my biological mother and an older, um, maternal half brother and his wife. (laughs) So did you, so I mean, this is all information that is public in a way, I guess, to PIs who know where to look for it. Um, so I, I did, I, I kind of sat with that information for a while, um, before I tried to make contact and, the first time I tried to make contact, uh, it was a very short conversation. Like she was almost kind of, uh, unresponsive. And, and I learned, um, later, uh, when I tried again, that I, I think it was, a, a just happened to be bad luck that I called it kind of a bad time. I think there was a death in the family or something like that. So, um, that was a lot to take all at once. Mm. Um, when I did try again, Um, we talked for about an hour and she said kind of at the beginning of the conversation, how nervous she was, um, at the end, she said, Oh, this, this was okay. You know, you could send me some photos, um, which I did. Uh, but I never heard back from her after that, you know, for whatever reason, it's, it's difficult. I'm sure. Um, Yeah, but it must be difficult for you as well. I mean, to... It, it is. I mean, I had uh, years ago attended some adoption search and support group meetings mm-hmm. uh, where adoptees and kind of birth parents would uh, meet and talk about um, their feelings or talk about their searches. So, I mean, I do have a little more insight into how difficult it can be from other perspectives, you know. Um, and, yeah, it's, I mean, she would not have expected particularly to have ever heard from me like she knew that the records were sealed but at the same time um you know birth parents are are, should be aware of the fact that there's always been the possibility that the records can be unsealed by a judge and there are cases where judges will do that um just because the adoptee's petitioning and the adoptee's an adult and the judge says you know that's really enough and there's nothing in the law that says that they can't unseal it for, you know, that simple reason. It just doesn't happen that often. Um, bills that would change the law so that adoptees could get the information as a matter of right uh, started being introduced in New York State in 1974. Um there was a hearing uh, back in the mid-'70s, a legislative hearing about it, uh, the issue. And then there was a hearing about it in more recent years, and some of the people from the, the meeting in the 70s were at the one in the 2000s. Oh, my goodness. You know, they've so been they've active been all this time. time. Yeah. You've been at it 20 Since years Since the late now. 90s, yeah. yeah. I got involved with um, Bastard Nation, the adoptee rights uh, organization, in 97, I believe, Uh joined their legislative committee in 99, uh, started doing a lot of research about the legislative history and intent of uh, New York's sealed birth and adoption records. Um, so they, they wanted me on board for that. Uh, and over the years, I, I did kind of get a lot of uh, activist burnout. You know, I needed to put the issue down for a while. Um, well, I can imagine not just the usual activist burnout, but to have something that's so a very close personal to you issue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would really wear on you. But now the assembly and the senate have both passed this bill, and it's just waiting for the governor to sign off. That's right. Um, there, there was an enormous amount of support for the bill. Um, Do you have any inkling that it would be like Lehman back in the 30s that is just not going to sign off on? Well, there's sort of an echo of what happened uh, in the 30s. Like there was the 35 bill that would have created these fictitious birth Mm -hmm. certificates for uh, illegitimate children. Lehman vetoed that. 
uh, created a commission to study the issue. A new bill was introduced with the original and amended birth certificates for adoptees. Uh, Something similar happened uh, with this bill where um, Governor Cuomo had vetoed a bill. Sorry, I'm pulling out a piece of paper here. That's That's under my computer. Um, The... There was a bill that passed in the legislature in 2017 um, that would have provided in some ways uh, easier access for adoptees to their original birth certificates, but it would have made it harder in other ways um, and would have given uh, biological parents a right to veto the adoptee's access in a way that the current law does not actually give them that right. Like um, biological parents' rights uh, over adoptees and their property and so forth are terminated. You know, mm-hmm. when a child surrendered for adoption, uh, but this would have given the biological parents a right to veto the disclosure of the original birth certificate, uh, even in cases where the adoptee was an adult even in cases where the adoptee had been surrendered for adoption due to abuse by the parents and the parental rights had been terminated due to that abuse. So it was a law that um, the sponsors had the right intentions, but it was really ill-conceived. But it it had not been obvious to the legislature how ill-conceived it was. And there was an enormous... um, you know, attempt by adoptee rights groups and, you know, uh, even biological parents. Uh, There's a concerned United Birth Parents uh, is one group that kind of represents birth parents that are interested in helping adoptees to gain information. So everybody was writing the governor saying, you have to veto this bill. You have to. And he did. And we were so happy, so relieved that he vetoed it. Um, so he, in his uh, veto message of December 29th, 2017, um, you know, he said that he was interested in helping adoptees, you know, get easier access to their original birth records, but this bill is not the right way to do it. And I'm going to have the Department of Health establish a work group of stakeholders to look at the issue. Oh, so it's very similar. Exactly. To yeah. It's sort of, it's an echo of the thirties. So this sort of has his blessing going in because he set up the group. I mean, you don't expect him to not sign. Right. It. The, there was an, uh, uh, adoptee stakeholder work group, uh, report, that was created uh, April 30th, 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not at that, but people I was working with were at that. Um, and coming out of that stakeholder group, um, the the current bill that, that's been signed by the legislature is what came out of that. So it's generally expected that um, Cuomo will sign this. And we've had good signs from his office kind of along the way. Um, And the expectation is that uh, it will be sent to the governor for his signature soon. We don't know exactly when, but uh, it's expected to be soon. Uh, And if there's going to be possibly an event kind of around the signing uh, where um, activists might be allowed to be there in the media, because it's it's a big deal. (laughs) It's taken so long. How will it make you feel? You spent decades on this. Right. Well, I mean, I... I've also learned who my biological father is now, like just a few months ago. Oh, my um, goodness. Like someone, How did you do that? Well, I I had tried doing um, a DNA test a number of years ago from one company, and that kind of didn't uh, tell me too much. Uh, you know, it told me a bit more than I knew about um, my biological ancestry on both sides, generally, you know, the general mm-hmm. things that you learn from. But um, I was given a kit from uh, Ancestry DNA. And when I logged on to get my results, at the top was biological father. (laughs) And then right below that, you know, half, well, it said, you know, possibly cousin, possibly this, but it was a biological uh, half-brother through my biological father, another paternal half-brother, and then the fourth person down was my uh, biological maternal half-brother who I already knew about from the PI. 
and then a slew of cousins after that. It's up to well, over six hundred seventy. Stunned. People. What was that like to open that up and see your father? He was he looking for you? Is that why he submitted his DNA? No, um, I mean it's possible that he has never known about me. He he was in the area for um, graduate studies uh, that the military was sponsoring him for. So he was an older student. Um, and he was only here for those graduate studies. And so he was actually gone before I was born. So it, it would depend on how close a relationship he and my bio- biological mother had. Did when, you get in touch with him? I, I tried um, contacting him through the Ancestry website. I figured that'd be the best way. Like if you're getting, you know, it's a little harder for the the biological fathers, like the biological mother remembers that the birth, of course, mm-hmm. the biological father might not know about the birth at all. Um, and so, but if he's been contacted through the DNA website, like there's a little, you know, not really any doubt there. Mm-hmm. Um, the margin of error is just, you know, nothing. So I did try contacting him through the site, but the the website did indicate like he hadn't logged in since um, September, I guess, of last year. So you've never heard. I haven't heard back, you know, and I know emails um, sent through the website, like they can easily get caught up by a junk filter, you know. Yeah, but what is, do you feel, how do you feel? Like in suspension waiting to hear from this man or is it not? Something that um, I don't really feel in suspense uh, too much, given that I, you know, I, th- I think there's a reasonably good chance that he just didn't see the attempt that I made. Yeah. Um, I, I will probably try uh, writing him a letter at some point, but you know, I've been going back and forth about when I want to try doing that. Like, I don't know if I want to be in suspense about whether I'll be waiting to hear back from him while I'm also waiting in suspense about the bill passing. Yeah, like maybe one, one thing, thing at a time. time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, wow, it sounds like your adoptive family was supportive of you. Yeah, they, they, they had been. Um, my biological, my, my adoptive father um, died, you know, back in the 90s, but, you know, he had been supportive. My, my um, adoptive mother has been supportive. Um, I have a, a younger brother who's the biological son of my adoptive parents. You know, they're, they've all been kind of supportive about this. And, you know, I have um, been able to find out, even without kind of a relationship with either of my biological parents, I have been able to find out some medical history, you know, because once I knew who my biological mother was, I could use uh, newspaper databases mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. Uh, find who her parents were, find obituaries that give causes of death, kind of work my way back, you know, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so forth. So I, I finally had more information about um, um, my biological ancestors that I could share with my doctor. But and, aside from that practical medical information, there's so much of someone's identity that, you know, a lot of it is, you know, the well, a sense of who they are as a person versus yeah. what your genetics are. I right. mean, that must be something that you're constantly sorting through or not. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I feel I have, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot in common with my adoptive family, um, you know, in terms of values and, um, humor and all, all those kinds of things. Um, and I, I imagine that that will be true to some degree with my biological parents, but, you know, who knows how much. Um, yeah, I don't really have too big a picture of who they are as people except from whatever n- newspaper articles they happen to be uh, mentioned in over mm-hmm. the years. So, um, yeah, but the the... The bill, uh, it has the support of the American Association of Adoption Attorneys. That was a really big development that happened in the work group uh, in 2018 that they had not supported uh, open records for adoptees prior to that. Um, so getting kind of the, the professional organization support was yeah. a, big, a big assist. And then the New York Adoptee Rights uh, Coalition has sort of been uh, – helping with um, 
getting this bill passed, um, you know, getting activists to go to the legislative office building and talk to people in person. Um, and that, that had been interesting in itself. Like you go to the different offices and some of the, the legislative staffers would kind of confide, Oh, you know, I'm adopted and, or, you know, Oh yeah, my aunt just did one of those DNA tests and she found out such and such. So, um, the DNA has been a really big thing. I mean, a lot of people get that and a lot of people get like, geez, if you can find out who your biological parents are sometimes, uh, through one of these DNA tests, if they happen to have taken it, or if even a relative has taken it, you can sort of triangulate mm-hmm. who someone mm-hmm. is from other people that have taken the test, which, um, I don't know that may, people might find that creepy, but that's where we are technologically. Um, that's where we are. And, you know, also find cold cases. It's amazing how the, the DNA tests are useful for solving those. But, um, yeah, the, the coalition has involved like Bastard Nation and the American Adoption Congress had been part of the coalition. They, they sort of split off while also still um, supporting the bill. And gosh, do I have the list? I had a list of all of them and I can't find it at the moment. Um, the um, Re- Reclaim the Records is another group that's been supporting they've been filing so freedom been of information requests um... not not there hasn't been really any organized um opposition to the bill there's no coalition uh opposing the bill um there is only one organization i'm aware of that had put in um a memo opposing the bill, which was the, the women's bar association, which was a little bit of a surprise. Um, yeah, especially since you had the attorneys that work on adoption in favor. I wonder what the women's bar association. Well, I don't think it's so much that the organization as a whole is opposed to open records. I think it's just that the few people involved in, um, writing some of their legislative memos personally oppose it. Uh, and, the membership of the organization hasn't necessarily let them know whether they really agree with that mm. position that, that's been taken. Because it uh, seems to me we've had a cultural shift since the last piece of legislation. Well, there's so much, um, certainly there is much less stigma about illegitimacy. And what surprises me about some of the arguments they raise, like they're raising an argument that the state uh, promised uh, perpetual anonymity to the biological mothers, which is something that legally could never be promised because mm-hmm. the laws uh, permit for the, the records courts. to be unsealed right. uh, without the permission of the biological parents. Like, they don't have to be notified even that such a petition has been made. Um, and, you know, there is a history of some judges uh that are permissive about unsealing records, you know, and then there's the fact of, um, you know, PIs can sometimes identify birth parents or, you know, DNA can sometimes identify birth parents or, you know, there's the New York city birth indexes, you know, for, for downstate. So it's a promise that couldn't be made. It's a promise that could never legally be made. And even as a practical matter, it could never be made. So I don't really understand why, um, this fiction that the promise has been made, uh, is out there, yeah. yeah. So I, I found the sheet. Okay, uh, with so the let's other, hear the supporting groups. Some of, some of the other groups in the coalition, the Adoptive and Foster Family Coalition of New York, founded in 1975 as the New York State Citizens Coalition, uh, Bastard Nation, um, the Adoptee Rights Law Center, um, Reclaim the Records as a strategic partner, and then organi- organizations that are in support, the Adoptee Zakin und uh, family Recht of the Netherlands. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, California Open, Canada Open Records, Concerned United Birth Parents, Equality for Adoptees, Indiana Open, Italia Adoption, Know Your Own, Michigan Open Records, Minnesota Coalition for Adoption Reform, Missouri Open, 
National Center on Adoption and Permanency, New York Genealogical and Biographical Society. That that was a big uh, a big addition there. Nevada Open and the Post Adoption Center for Education and Resources. And then you know, so these are the states in the United States that already have similar laws. Uh, it's some organizations from other uh, states. Yeah, that are in support. There, there are the Netherlands is one that has open all the way through. Is that? I'm actually not sure off the top okay. of my head. Like I know there are other countries that have open records. Uh, so it's you know, an England and Wales. Issue. It is an it's, international yeah. issue. Um, in in the United States, there's some states that uh, let adoptees have access to their original birth records as a matter of right, but they're in the minority. The mm-hmm. the most have something more or less like uh, New York's. They, mm-hmm. they vary um, as to the circumstances under which they'll permit access to be given. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I do have something here with some of the open record states. You know, Oregon, Kansas was always open. Um, Alaska yeah, was always open. The yeah, the there's a, there's a lot of them. Site. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's, it looks like it's a growing movement. But I just want to thank you for your just deep sense of history on this and sharing it. Unfortunately, our time is past, but I I have learned so much. Do you have any closing thoughts? Will Will you be one of the activists that's there if the governor signs this? If there's an event that's going to be open to. Um, the public or to you know key participants i i certainly hope to be there like when the the bill was in the assembly for that vote i was so frustrated because i was out of town and i could not mm. get back for that so i was watching it online you know very tensely um so how will that make you feel if he signs that uh it'll make me feel good i mean it'll be closure on an issue that I've been involved with for a long time, kind of beating my head against the wall with activism, burning out on it. You know, at this point, like getting my own um, original birth certificate will be sort of a little bit anticlimactic because I already know the information that will be on it, um, having obtained it through other sources. But, you know, it'll still be nice to be able to have that you know, my own birth certificate that the government all these years has said, no, no, you can't have that. So I'll be able to have that. And I'll know that I've had some small role in uh, helping, you know, other adoptees gain access. And incidentally, it's not just adoptees. The bill will also give access to the descendants of deceased adoptees. So like if your grandparent was adopted and was never able to find that information, like, the grandkid will be able to obtain that, which, you know, I think is a a really nice feature of the law. Well, thank you for your work and also for your being so articulate (laughs) in explaining this. Oh, thanks. (laughs) 